Hello, welcome to A Leader Like Me podcast, where we will be amplifying diverse voices. My name is Advita Tal. And I'm Priya Bates, and we're co-founders of A Leader Like Me. We really hope you enjoy this listen. This week, we talked to Jefferson Darrell, who is among Canada's earliest outliers in the idea arena successfully driving positive change management for organizations for the past five years, resulting in more diverse and inclusive teams and increased revenue or business opportunities. Jefferson owns Breakfast Culture, which offers group training and individual coaching around IDEA, which stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, Accessibility. They focus on concepts, ideas, and thinking. They help you achieve your DNI epiphany. I love that. So with that conversation Jefferson, with Jefferson and Vita, what really stood out for you? The, the big takeaway moments for me was there were so many, and, and when you folks hear it, you'll know what I mean, but Jefferson's vulnerability throughout the entire conversation. And I know it takes so much to put yourself out there. And I loved what he shared with us because I know there'll be so many people listening to his story and resonating with what he's saying. Um, and I just loved, I just loved how he came out of that as well, and and creating breakfast culture to help others, you know, thrive and succeed and be more than what they say they want to do. Move away from that performative angle and be the change. And he talks about change quite a lot in in our interviews. So I, I absolutely loved that. I loved his vulnerability. And as someone who's known Jefferson since we graduated PR school in 1994, I probably dated and aged us with that. Um, what's been amazing to me is seeing his journey and as a black gay man in the PR industry in Canada, really coming into his own and finding his passion. And he was talking DNI long before George Floyd and long before the changes that are happening. And it feels like he was having these conversations. And I, even I, as a pers- person of color and a woman of color, didn't really understand them and understand what he was saying until everything everything opened up in 2020. And so I really hope you enjoy this uh, conversation with Jefferson. And you like, share, retweet, follow him as well, uh, because he's doing some incredible work. We'd love you to leave a review for us if you enjoyed this episode as well. And please do share with your friends, family, and colleagues who you think may enjoy a Leader Like Me podcast. Thank you. If you are responsible for the diversity, equity, and inclusion mandate for your organization, join WINGS, a bespoke program where we bring the experts to you and provide a safe community to share best practices to help you progress and cultivate a culture of belonging. You can find out more at aleaderlikeme.com. Today, we're talking to Jefferson Darrell. Jefferson, let's start by you telling us about your background and what brought you to the PR industry, to the diversity space before it was cool. Thank you, Priya. Um, So a little bit about my background. I spent about 15 to 20 years, okay, the ageism there, uh, 20 years officially, uh, working in the public relations space. Uh, In terms of the diversity and inclusion arena, for me, that journey, I would say, started about 10 years ago. I was moving into the senior levels of um, PR, 
And I was looking for vice president roles, senior director roles, and I was meeting with, you know, CEOs, presidents of PR agencies. For me, the turning point was when I met with Lisa Kimmel, who was recently appointed the um, Canadian CEO of um, Edelman. And she made headlines around the world because that was one of the first, um, as you know, Edelman is the largest um, independent PR firm. I think it was one of the, um, she was one of the first sort of CEOs, female CEOs rather, for a large firm like that, at least in Canada. And... You have to remember, 10 years ago, if you use the word diversity, if you use the word inclusion, I see Advita nodding here, those were four-letter words. Like, you could not use those terminology. You were marked as a troublemaker. As It was taboo to use any type of inclusion terminology 10 years ago. And my strategy when I was meeting with people was, if they brought up inclusion and diversity, in other words, if they had opened the door, I would walk through. And Lisa opened the door. She very um, rightly and astutely pointed out how an industry, PR, that boasts well over 70% women, how come when you go into the C-suite, that number flips and it's suddenly 70% men? It's like that, when you look just statistically, that doesn't really make sense. And I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. And I just had a, we had a chat about inclusion and diversity, in this case, from a female perspective. Um, and it was interesting. So I said to her, I said, well, what did you do? Like, what was your strategy? Because I said, I've noticed that as well. Um, more from issues of race versus gender. And I'll be honest, she did open my eyes to gender. Um, but what was your strategy? And she said to me, well, I looked for people who looked like me. I looked for other women who were CEOs, presidents, vice presidents, reached out to them, worked with them, you know, mentorship, sponsorship. And I thought, wow, that is such a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? For... The Torontonians who you know, are listening to this podcast, Edelman's offices at the time, I think they're still there, were on the northeast corner of Blue and Avenue Road. I think they're on the seventh or eighth floor. And in my elevator ride from that floor down to the lobby, I got to be honest, Priya, I broke down into tears. And I realized the reason why I hadn't thought of this very simple idea was there was no one who looked like me. Frankly, there was no one who looked like you or Advita. There were no racialized peoples in CEO roles, in VP roles, in the PR industry. Admittedly, you know, there might have been the odd, at least in Toronto, and again, I'm looking at our Canada, I'm going to say not just Toronto, there's maybe, you know, one or two sort of Asian women, Chinese women in particular, who were in charge of the quote-unquote ethnic practice. But that was about it. And I realized that the reason why I didn't think of that was there was no one who looked at me, looked like me. And I remember thinking, I thought of you, Priya, actually, I thought of myself, I thought of a lot of my colleagues who I went to school with, how... We should be in these roles now. We should be in these positions, but we're not there. And that's when I started doing a lot of research and looking into issues of diversity and inclusion, especially as it relates to the PR industry. So you created Breakfast Culture. Yes. And that was something, you know, stepping out of internal uh, organizations into your own entrepreneurship. Tell me a little bit about what Breakfast Culture is about. Sure. So going back to that journey, I apologize. I realized I have not fully answered your question there. That's when I started my own research and looking into issues of inclusion and diversity. And I take that one step further. I was working for a large government or um, agency, government agency at the time. And again, another epiphany happened. Um, I'm just going to be blunt. I was invited to attend a meeting. And I was instructed by my manager that you're here to take the minutes, take the notes from the meeting. You're not supposed to participate. And so I'm sitting there, and I noticed every single person in the meeting, or all the managers, they're all white, quite frankly, um, women and men, um, a lot more women than men, frankly. And the topic of discussion was how do we attract more visible minorities to our organization? And I remember thinking, 
while looking around, well, everyone in this meeting's white. I don't know, maybe have more racialized people in this meeting. And the one racialized person you have was instructed not to just not to talk. And that's when I started doing some bit more homework. And I remember going back to my desk. I called up the organizational chart and I looked at it. I was like, huh, out of the 30 some odd managers here, literally every single one, except there was one junior manager who, who was, um, he was South Asian, I believe, but everyone else was white. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. And then I started asking questions and I went to, there was another manager who was black who recently was actually demoted and because a white woman took over his position and they positioned it as more community relations for him and whatnot. And I had a chat with him about that and he just smiled at me and looked at me as if I was crazy, frankly, and said, oh, you just noticed everyone's white. And I said to him, well, I've never seen all the managers in a room together before. Like I just had it. And I mean, I never really looked at the org chart. And I said, yeah, you know what? I, uh, you're right. I mean, I should have realized that earlier, but I just had never seen it before. And then he started telling me how it was by design. I was like, what do you mean by design? And then he said, oh, talk to this person, talk to that person. So I just started talking to different people, um, black peoples, um, South Asian peoples, East Asian peoples, what have you, different racialized peoples in the organization. And I recognized there were systemic issues going on. And that's when I remember studying this myself. So that's when I started to study um, leadership and change management um, through the Canadian Center of Diversity and Inclusion and Centennial College. And I remember going to the HR department to say, hey, look, you know, again, I put my PR hat on, like, let's be a positive influence on this. The CEO was going out and there was a new CEO coming in. And I said, hey, there seems to be a problem with diversity, inclusion, um, representation, yada, yada, yada. And why don't we put together a plan and come at it with this new CEO coming in and we'll have a nice whole positive spin and everything and, you know, try to address these issues. And I remember my HR director said, well, Jefferson, when you come with a problem, you should come with a solution. And I looked at her and I said, well, you're, you're right. But I'm a marketing communications person. I'm not a DNI person. I'm not an HR person. So I don't have the solution for this. So what did I do? I think I said earlier, I went and I studied this. So I spent two years. Um, I used um, through the program, my capstone project was change for this organization. And I remember my professor said to me after, I said, this is a very actionable well-researched, well-thought-out plan, and your organization could use this, and you need to bring it back to your organization and share it with them. So I did. And now let me take a step back here, Priya. Number one, I went with a problem, and I was told, come back with a solution. I did not have the solution. I didn't have the insight for that or the education for that. So I spent two years, my own time, my own dime, uh, my own time, my own money, and studied this, came back with a actionable plan, an actionable plan. Who does that? Who does that in organizations? And you would think the organization would be like, oh my goodness, this person is so keen. Like, let's use that. But instead, HR's response was, well, we have to wait until the larger government. It was, as I said, it was an agency of the government. We have to wait for the larger government to actually enact a plan. So she basically chucked my plan. What I thought was fascinating, though, was three months later, the government came out with their own anti-racism action plan. Eight of the recommendations I put in there were I put in my plan were on their 10 recommendations. They still wow. haven't done anything. I mean, they still didn't do anything. There is change happening now. It's taken a while. Um, so I left. That was one of the reasons why I left. Um, so when I started educating myself, as I said, about these issues, I suffered quite a bit of racial battle fatigue. Um, it's a term coined by um, Dr. William Smith. And it speaks to the physical, mental, and emotional challenges that racialized peoples 
undergoing the workplace. For example, for me physically, like I, I had gained 50 pounds. I personally, I was in therapy for three years. I say I felt suicidal. I need to clarify that. I have a stronger understanding of suicide now. Um, when I say I felt suicidal, I did not have a plan to take my own life. However, Monday mornings, 3 a.m., I would wake up in a cold sweat, helpless. I couldn't get back to sleep, feeling so helpless and feeling hopeless and dreading, dreading going into work the next day. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible time in my life. You actually, Priya, I mean, full disclosure, Priya and I went to school together, um, PR school together. And you even said, you're like, Jeff, you know, Priya calls me Jeff short by short. You know, wow, you're not really yourself these days. What's going on or what have you? And then going back to Breakfast Culture, that's one of the reasons why I founded Breakfast Culture is I don't want anyone to have to go through, racialized people especially, to have to go through what I went through. It was a horrible, horrible time in my life. So I took those lemons, I made lemonade and... That's when I when and why I founded Breakfast Culture. And then even Priya, you had pointed out, I remember at one point you were like, Jefferson, this is the Jefferson I went to school with. What's going on? You're in a much better <laughs> headspace now. What's happening? And I realized it was because I said, as I said, I learned some very hard lessons at that organization around change management. Um, and a few of the lessons I learned, one of the things I learned was change doesn't always look like what you expect it to look like. Everyone says change um, can happen immediately. And on one hand, you're not wrong. They're not wrong in terms of, policies and, you know, putting in policies and putting in decisions. That said, change is going to take time in terms of the people enacting those decisions and those policies. So there is going to be some time for change as well. Plus, you need to put in resources. And I mean human resources. I mean money. I mean time. Most of the time, and I, it's funny, when I think about the work I was doing. So I was up for a um, VP role of DNI. And I was informed again because of my background, and I attribute this to, frankly, systemic racism. I have never held a VP title. I've never held VP compensation, revenue, or what have you. That said, in two of my um, positions, I sat at this executive leadership table as a manager. And what I find fascinating is, in one of them, the only other black person, the only other racialized person at that table was another black woman. We were both managers and we made the business case. A lot of times, women especially, racialized peoples as well, we don't ask for what we deserve. I'm, I'm just, I'm generalizing, I know. And we made our business case and we asked for it. We said, look, we're at the table. We're here at every single one of these executive leadership team meetings. We're the only people, we're giving the counsel, we're the only people with manager titles. Everyone else has a director title. We should have a bump in our title and we should have a bump in our salary. And the response was, well, you know, you're not wrong, but maybe in two years we can look at senior manager and a bump then. And we're like, but we're doing the work now. Why do we have to wait two years when all the non-Black peoples who are here, well, they're all white people, frankly, are already having that title and do, like, why do we have to wait? What's that about? And so that's one of the reasons why I started and that's what motivates my work at Breakfast Culture. So Breakfast Culture works where inclusion and diversity intersects with marketing and communications. I mean, gosh, Jefferson, what a powerful story that you just shared with us there. And really appreciate you being so open and vulnerable about the experiences that you felt during that time. And, um, you know, Priya and I know through the work we do through a leader like me and the conversations we've held with other racialized you know folks and our our own community the, the incredible women that we work with on that feeling you had you know that waking up in the middle of the morning and dreading going into work because you just feared whatever was happening and coming up with the action plan and them not recognizing the contributions you're making but yet you know take those ideas and claim them as their own thinking 
it's basically gaslighting, right? They've gaslit you all the way through your kind of experience and, and learnings. And it takes a powerful person to look beyond that and think, what can I do to help change in this environment? Because a lot of what you just shared and experienced definitely would have broken a lot of people. And I'm sure people who are listening to this conversation right now, uh, some of people will resonate with that and probably feel that way right now in, in, in the world that they're in. And with your experience, you know, what, what was it? What was that one thing that made you go, do you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to create breakfast culture and I'm going to go. I'm going to do this. What was that one thing that tipped you? Um, I remember that moment clear as day. So I was the only black person in my department in the marketing communications team. They brought in another black person. So there are four of us in the team. We're all technically the same level. And I remember we're sitting in a meeting and the director came and said, okay, we have a new policy. Um, I'm going to change names to protect the innocent or protect the people who are in the meeting. So I was instructed that my work would be reviewed by um, Victoria, who was a white woman, um, and that Roseanne's work would be reviewed by Amanda, who was another white woman, and Roseanne was a black woman. And I had already been there for eight years. I was frankly the most senior person there in time, seniority in time, and also in experience. And I just called it for what it was. And I said, so wait a minute, if I understand this correctly, the white people have to review the black people's work before management will review it. That was the new policy that was coming down. They didn't state that. What they stated was, as I said, Victoria will review Jefferson's work and Amanda will review, um, it was Roseanne, correct? That was the name I used? Roseanne's work. Again, Jefferson and Roseanne were both black. Amanda and Victoria were both white. I didn't use names. I didn't even use the word racism. And I remember said to them, so if I understand, as I just stated at Vita, so if I understand correctly, the white people have to review the black people's work before management will look at it. That's what they were asking. And immediately, Amanda started crying and said, I'm not racist. And I'm not, and it made it about her. It was classic white fragility, classic white tears, classic white guilt. And she said, I'm not racist. And, and, and then I said, you know, hold on there, Amanda. I never, I never, did I even use the word racism? Did I even say you were, did I say anyone in this room was racist? If anything, I didn't even use the word. I implied that this policy is racist, but I didn't call out any individual racist. So when we're ready to have a proper discussion about this, I will come back to this meeting. And I got up and I left. And I got to be honest, Avita, because there was part of me was like, where did that come from? And, and I'll be honest, I was done at that point. And I remember because Roseanne came out to me and said, Jefferson, I can't believe you did that in the meeting. And I just looked at her. She goes, of course, it's a racist policy. I said, yeah. And then she looked at me and smiled. You're done, aren't you? I said, yeah, I can't take this anymore. I'm done. Like, I, I, I can't take this. And this was constant. These were the constant... Um, racist systemic issues that were coming up within this organization for anyone who wasn't white, frankly. And, 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 and it was frustrating. It was just, and I was trying to be positive moving forward, all of that. Because I understand, you know, you know, you know, let's, you know, I can be part of that problem, quote unquote, even though I wasn't really part of the problem, but I'm like, okay, let's try and work within the system and affect some change. I'm proud to say though, that there has been some change. And this was, keep in mind, this was all before the racial awakening of 2020. 
and the murder of George Floyd. This was all before that. And what was fascinating is when that happened, the new CEO of this organization actually called me personally because um, they started having these discussions. And a few of the racialized peoples actually brought up my name and said, Jefferson was talking about this years ago. And none of you listened and none of you supported him or what have you. And what touched me the most was a lot of them called me up and said, look, I'm really sorry. I should have supported you. I should have been vocal. I wasn't because I was afraid to lose my job. And they're not wrong because that's what would happen if you, anyone in these, again, my privilege there was because I was full time. And like, again, when you look at the numbers and the statistics, there are about 500 staff in this organization, 200 were part-time, 300 were full-time. Most of the part-time seasonal employees, that's where the brown and black folks were. Most of the full-time part um, people were white. That was my privilege. I was one of maybe 30 or 40 non-white people who were full-time. And I'm not stupid. I made sure I had about two or three years of excellent performance reviews under my belt because I knew once I started speaking up, I knew my days were numbered there. And I knew that and I realized I want out. And that's how Breakfast Culture started to, um, that idea started to come to me because I realized, let me take what I'm doing here. Let me take what I'm doing in my volunteer work with the Black Coalition for AIDS Prevention. That was one of my very first change management exercises. Let me take the work I'm doing there and let me start helping other organizations. And that's how Breakfast Culture came about. Wow. Now, you hung up your own shingle, Jefferson, to start Breakfast Culture. But since the, the racial awakening that you're talking about, the cultural awakening that happened with George Floyd, a lot of people have hung up their diversity yep. and inclusion shingles. So tell me a little bit about when hiring, what should organizations be looking for when it comes to expertise? Well, that's an interesting question. So one thing I've learned in this sector, um, in my opinion, frankly, it's, I'm, not, I'm not the only one with this opinion. I've been chatting with other um, DNI um, people are doing diversity and inclusion work. Um, it's the Wild West right now. Like there's, as you said, Priya, like everybody and their uncles hanging up their shingles, what have you. Um, and again, I think that's wonderful. One thing I've noticed in the space is we are very collaborative. As in, I've reached out to people who, one could argue, frankly, are my competitors. And what I've noticed is a lot of us speak the same language. A lot of us are in it for the right reasons. We want to basically work ourselves out of a job at some point. Um, that said, I have noticed that depending upon, like some organizations focus solely on gender issues. Some focus on racial issues. Some focus on LGBTQ plus issues. Uh, breakfast culture, I mean, obviously because of my own intersectionality of race and of um, LGBTQ+, so um, sexual orientation, if you will. Um, because of that, I obviously those are two areas that I do focus on strongly. That said, I brought in some partners, women, for example. Um, most of my um, female partners are racialized women, actually. Again, intersectionality is so important for me um, when we talk about issues of sexism with our clients. So in terms of clients looking for a DNI consultant, I go back to, as I was saying, the style. Actually, I don't think I said that. I'm going to say that, the style. So as I was saying, we all sort of speak the same language, but I've noticed we all have a different approach. I have one colleague in the space who's very, I call him Mr. Tough Love. So if I have a client who sort of, and I've I, you know, had these discussions with clients where they're like, this executive really doesn't quite get it, um, needs a little bit more... Um, I wouldn't use the word hand-holding, but needs the tough love, frankly. Um, so then I'll bring that person in. 
at Breakfast Culture, because of my PR background, I recognize that what, what is the, when you look at PR, the actual crux of PR is changing public perception. That's what we do in PR, whether it's internal, whether it's external, what have you, i.e. we want people to think differently, so they're going to act differently. That is what we're trying to do in the diversity and inclusion space. We want people to think differently, so they'll act differently. So going back to clients, I look for clients at Breakfast Culture, at least, that also align with our values. And I find, I mean, our three verticals, quite frankly, are uh, marketing communications companies, mainly because I've worked in that arena. I understand that space. So that's what we're heavily going after. Um, My volunteer work in the... um, HIV AIDS space through the Black Coalition for AIDS Prevention, and now with client work with the um, Ontario AIDS Network, the um, OHTN, the Ontario HIV Treatment Network. Um, That's another vertical that we go after. And then I've spent a lot of time in the arts and cultural spaces. So that's the other vertical that we go after. So ideally, for breakfast culture at least, and for clients, there's a great alignment there because I understand their industries. And when we go in, ideally to do a diversity and inclusion audit, so for organizational diversity and inclusion change, I have a better understanding of what their organization is about, what they're dealing with. Again, when I look at it from an arts and culture standpoint, I've worked with talent. Um, by that, I mean like actors, artists, etc. So I understand what that's about. I've also worked with the admin staff. I've been the admin staff on that front. So I understand their challenges. And the people I hire and bring into Breakfast Culture understand those challenges. So I find that's a big help because um, it's not necessarily one solution per organization. The other thing I think I would recommend for clients to look at is what is the basis for your change? Again, I'm looking at this from a high level in terms of a DNI audit. So at Breakfast Culture, we actually subscribe to a global industry standard, the GDEIB, Global Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Benchmarks, um, that comes out of the Center for Global um, Diversity and Inclusion in the United States. Uh, and in a nutshell, well over 1,000, they um, talk with well over 1,000 different DNI um, professionals around the world uh, to come up with this standard. So that's something that um, Breakfast Culture does subscribe to, um, along with some of the work by Trevor Wilson. Um, I forget the other fellow's name, uh, the textbooks I studied, but in a nutshell, Trevor Wilson's Inclusion Continuum, um, which does align with the GDEIB as well. So that's who we subscribe to. So we're not just. I'm not just going in saying, hey, I'm black and I'm gay, listen to me. Um, I use, I'm black and I'm gay, this has been my experience in organizations where I have not felt included, where I have not felt to see um, a sense of belonging. And then based on my education, based on my research, and based on, the, as I said, the GDEIB, and more importantly, data. So at Breakfast Culture, um, one of our business partners on um, Prompt AI, um, we actually use their technology to go in and measure feelings of belonging and inclusion within organizations. So all of our work is actually informed by data versus, oh, we think there might be an issue or, you know, but we're not really sure. Now we can go in and say, you know what, this is what your people are telling you. This is what your women are telling you. We can push a lever. This is what your racialized women are telling you. We can push another lever. This is what your, um, you know, queer males are telling you or your queer females or all your queer people we can find that information out through our DNI audit process. So we go in with um, from a technology-based um, on the front end with data that will inform the work that we're going to do to actually affect real change in your organization based on listening to what your people have to say. 
And I think that data and insight is incredibly important. You know, we always say, don't we, within the communications field anyway, and I know the other industries and professions do this as well, but backing up your gut and intuition is really important with data and insight because that's where you get the attention of the executives who may not believe there is actually a problem because they don't see colour. I don't see colour. I don't see race. I don't see gender in that way. I see people on the merit of the work they deliver but not actually recognising there's some unconscious or conscious bias and systemic, you know, process, uh, unfair processes, sorry, and systemic biases that take place in the organisation. The, the things that you experienced in your organisation several years before that nobody really acknowledged or addressed or were an active bystander to support you. And it's only after something tragic had to happen did they then pick up the telephone and say, sorry, that I didn't support you, Jefferson. You know, but having... That data and insight definitely, in my experience, I know it's Priya's experience as well, can help organisations and the people within the organisation understand much more about where the challenges are and focus rather than panic. Because I think panic causes fear uh, on that. Um, I know we could, like I said to Priya, I knew this conversation, we could do several parts and have many, many hours of chat with you, Jefferson. I want to ask you one more question before we move into the rapid fire round. Intersectionality, you mentioned that. Yes. Um, and, and it was a phrase coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, um, yep, I think right. in, in the late, you know, 20, 2017, 2018. Can you Tell us why it's so important to pay attention to intersectionality, because it is a new word and not everybody is aware of what that actually means. Well, Advita, may I share um, a little bit of a case study? Hushkan. So this is actually from my, my education on that front. Keep in mind, this would be during sort of segregation in the U.S. So there was a company in the United States um, years ago. Um, I don't know if they're around anymore. So this is a great example of intersectionality and how policies can actually have an adverse effect on certain sectors of the community. In this case, I'm talking about, I'm going to be blunt here, black women. So this organization, keep in mind, this is around segregation times. Um, So it was an organization, I think they're into manufacturing. They have their front office, the office people. Their policy at that time, and this was legal at the time in the States, Only white people were allowed to work in the front office, customer-facing, seeing folks. So none of the three of us would be permitted to work there because we're not white. In addition, part of their policy was that's where the women, white women, were allowed to work. Mainly they were secretaries. Let's just be realistic here. However, in the manufacturing, the plant, a lot of heavy lifting and whatnot, and again, keeping in mind the time, um, men were only allowed to work in the back in the um, back plant because of the heavy lifting of what was going on. And just again, because of the time and they needed the labor, they actually opened up and said, okay, we will welcome black men as well. But you can't ever go to the front office. Like if you need anything in the front office, someone will have to go on your behalf. Like you have to stay in the back in the manufacturing. So based on this policy right now, where are black women? Where are any racialized women? They, they cannot work there, period. Because they weren't allowed, women weren't allowed in the um, back office. And racialized peoples, black peoples in particular, were not allowed in the front office. But women were allowed to work in the front office. So now suddenly with this organization, black women can't work there, period. Period. So that's where we'll go back to the importance of intersectionality. And for me as a black gay man, 
Um, I recently won an award as um, LGBTQ plus advocate um, from the Canadian Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. And I find that often when I'm in block spaces, if issues of sexual orientation come up, or they're often forgotten or neglected, um, or I might see, you know, hear homophobic remarks, transphobic remarks, or what have you. And I find I'm advocating for queerness in black spaces. And then I'm in queer spaces. And issues of race might come up that are neglected or not there, and then suddenly I'm advocating for blackness now. Um, I've been to some more of those, and I went to this really great um, Bigger Than We um, last summer when things were opened up a little bit. Um, which was a black queer space. And that was, wow, I'm just, I remember I went, I brought a friend of mine and, you know, we had a little chat at my place before we went down there. And we were just talking about her, just talking like we're doing now. And he's a black gay man as well. And what was fascinating was our discussion incorporated our blackness. It incorporated our queerness. It's just part of our identities. And when we went to this Bigger Than We event, it was just a continuation of that discussion. Like, our blackness wasn't erased. Our queerness wasn't erased. And that's why I go back to the importance of intersectionality, as I personally often find aspects of my identity can get erased depending upon the room that I'm in. Another concrete example, going back to um, that provincial organization, um, I actually did participate in um, a report um, that talked about the anti-black racism within the government organization. And right there, so I was working with a black man. He was a cisgendered straight male. And he said to me, it's like, okay, I want you to do a report about the day in the life of a black gay man working within this organization. So I wrote a report. It was just a sort of, you know, 6 a.m. get on. It was just sort of the little microaggressions that happened throughout my day, personally and professionally. I wanted, I importantly wanted to put in the personal to demonstrate that a lot of times with angry black man, angry black woman, angry brown woman, what have you, when we come into the office and we experience a microaggression, you might not know about the eight or 10 or 12 microaggressions that happened prior to us getting in there. So if we blow up a little bit, we're, that's the reason why we're blowing up is, well, we'd already experienced it. And what I thought was fascinating is I use the phrase dominant culture in, you know, in my work. And he came back to me and he said, well, Dominant culture is a bit lingo-y, and I don't think they're, um, you know, the powers that be are going to understand that. So why don't you just say white people? And I said to him, well, this was supposed to be about my intersectionality. And he said, yeah. So for me, when I say dominant culture, sometimes I mean I'm in a room full of white people. You're right. Other times I'm in a room full of heterosexual people. And the classic example I used there was at this organization, we were very family-oriented, and the language we used to use, it's changed. I actually helped to change that. But we'd say, hey, bring mom, dad, and the kids down to our organization. And again, I said to him, and the example I used didn't even, wasn't even about queer. I said, look, my sister is a single mom. There's no dad in the kids. So it's just mom and the kids, or sometimes mom, uncle in this case, and the kids. Um, what about people who just have a grandmother? So we moved the language to bring your parents and her guardian. And the kids. Now I think the language is more who's your grown-up. But again, just something as simple as that. So I said to him, sometimes for me, dominant culture, it means I'm in a room full of heterosexual people. So it's not just about like dad and dad and the kids or mom and mom and the kids. That's why I use dominant culture. And he still couldn't seem to understand that and said, well, no, no, you should say white people. I said, but it's not always just about white people. And he could not wrap his, and I remember thinking, I remember getting frustrated. I'm like, you asking me to talk about my intersectionality, and here you are erasing my intersectionality. 
And I just find it fascinating when I'm, as I said, when I'm in a room full of black folk and if something homophobic or transphobic should come up, like I'm there talking about it and supporting that. Vice versa, when I'm in a room full of queer folk. And it's funny, I was in um, a queer organization and I felt a little frustrated and I actually was thinking, you know what, I, I need to leave. I'm the only racialized person here. And I felt like, oh, I, 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 I'm sick and tired of just having to stand up and having to do this. And then I heard one of my colleagues' voices in my head and he said, Jefferson, for that reason, you have to stay. I know it's not easy, but our voices need to be heard. And at the moment, you are the one doing it. You need to stay. And so I did stay. So intersectionality is so important. Um, and it's funny because I personally, I find people who do have like racialized women in particular um, and racialized queer, you know, queer folks who often have um, like the women will often have three intersectionalities. Um, men will have two. Um, but I find we're the only ones who typically get it. I don't know how else to put it. So, so, so true, uh, Jefferson. And, and, you know, I can relate with inter intersectionality and I think it just confuses people as well, which is why a lot of people don't want to embrace it because it's, you know, people like putting folks in boxes, don't they? You're a gay man, you go there. You're a black man, you go there. You're a South Asian woman, you go over there. And up until recently, it was even, doesn't matter it doesn't matter if what, what who you were, what your background was. If you were a person of colour, you went here. Right. And they never really thought about even. Well, to your point, Vita, and I apologize because I know you're more international. I think the term is BAME in the UK. In North yeah. America, BIPOC has taken over. I'll be honest. Initially, when people used to use the acronym BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, versus Visible Minority, um, one of the issues was, well, we're no longer the minorities. And the, initially, it was used to represent, let's talk about Black, peoples, and we're, again, black peoples are not a monolith, monolith. Let's talk about indigenous. And again, indigenous peoples are not a monolith. And then even people of color, um, because it was, I think it was people of color first, then it became black indigenous and people of color. But even people of color is problematic because, I mean, like I look at, um, I have a lot of South Asian friends. And it's funny because, I mean, some are Hindu, so some do celebrate Diwali. Um, a lot of my friends are from, uh, I believe it's the province of Goa, which is very Portuguese influence. And again, colonization that's a whole other discussion um but i know they're um catholic so again even there it's sort of like there are challenges because it's sort of not all south asian people are monolith as well and so just to lump everyone into P, um, poc or people of color and i personally the way it's being used today and by mainstream um media especially you're still lumping us all together as as if we're a monolith and that's my issue with the term bipoc um at least with bay and blackwood is it black asian or minority ethnics i think yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been make the same argument there as well, quite frankly. Yeah, and it is being encouraged in the UK to stop using that phrase or that acronym, sorry, and and not to use an acronym and potentially, you know, spell it out or change the narrative, right? And it's just take, like you said, right in the very first questions we asked you, change takes time, exactly, and behaviour takes time, and it needs patience. Uh, sprinkled with a lot of education and and knowledge, and but also. The, you know, the fact that things are changing and you have to get on board with it, to be honest. And, and everything you've talked about today, I, you know, I know will resonate with lots of people. It's definitely made me think a lot more about uh, how we approach certain things, not only with our community with a leader like me, but wider uh, in the work that we're doing with the DNI space. So rapid fire round. Not quite rapid, but we are going to come up with a new name for season two. But three questions I'm going to ask you. 
Um, so I want to kick it off. The first question is, let me get it right so I don't make any mistakes. Um, name a leader you admire who inspired you. Hmm. For any reason or does it have to be around DNI? No, nope, any leader. Any no, leader. Frankly, I would have to say Jay Cornblum Ray. She was a mentor and a sponsor to me. Unfortunately, she has passed on. Um, and I hope her brother, um, Warren Cornblum, hears this. Um, Jay, I met Jay earlier on in my career. I'd say sort of mid-level in my career. She was the one person I would say through my career, and I'm looking at this from a career standpoint, who really, really um, helped me, really, really saw my potential. And I remember I was, I was, I was fascinated because I'd never had an interview experience like this in my life. So in a nutshell, um, she was um, working at a boutique PR agency at the time. Um, she herself, she was a single mom, and she herself had some issues, you know, in like the big, she was a big VP at, you know, I think it was Porter Novelli or what have you, at a big corporate sort of world. And, you know, being a single mom and trying to, you know, work in the corporate world, it doesn't always jive. So that's one of the reasons why she moved to this smaller boutique firm um, to, you know, have a better work-life balance. And I remember going in there looking for an intermediate level job. Um, initially, I was offered sort of an entry-level junior job. She then called me up couple um, weeks later and said, look, I know you met with um, the office manager here. Um, I know you're offered a junior job. Looking at your resume, clearly you're, you know, you're overqualified for that. I need someone like you come in for an interview. So I remember chatting with her and I don't even think I talked in the interview. She just was saying, here's what we're about. Here's what we do. Here's what I can offer you. Um, clearly you're probably making X now. We can't afford that and you're worth that. She basically said, like, you're going to have to take a pay cut to come here. And it was like a $20,000 pay cut. That said, here's the bonus structure we can put into place. But here's what I'm going to give you out of this. You're going to get an education around um, PR agency, how to run a PR agency, how to operate a PR agency. Basically, she taught me about to be a COO. How can you do operations? And she was the one who took me under her wing. And to, you know, to her credit, when she got recruited to go start a... Um, a PR division at another organization. She brought me with her, jumped up my title, jumped up my salary, the whole bit. And it was funny because I remember when I was working there, when I first worked with her, she would watch me like a hawk. I could not even use the washroom without her following me. And then jumped to, and we were together for, gosh, about five or six years, I want to say. Jumped to at the new firm. She was just like, okay, what do you think, Jefferson? Okay, great, go do it, make it happen. And I remember the new person who was there said, she won't, she, she watches me like a hawk. And I said, yeah. But she just lets you do whatever. I said, I know. I was you four years ago. Give it time. You're going to be me again. But she really took me under her wing, helped me out. And actually an interesting story, if I might add to this quickly. When we'd be in pitch meetings, she was clearly in charge. But I go back to, um, I didn't talk about mansplaining earlier, but unfortunately she has passed. I suspect she was doing this. So we'd sit in pitch meetings and she said to me, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a good job. What I used to do was I'd sit there. She'd do the talking. And I would watch the client. And we'd both be watching the client. If the client had a little, I don't quite understand what's going on or what have you, you know, she'd look at me. I would interject with a little metaphor or whatever to explain. And then, oh, okay, great. And then I'd be quiet and she'd continue. And at first I thought, huh, am I just providing a different perspective here? Or was she actually like, oh, this guy, you know, she's not, he's not listening to me. I'm a woman. Let's get the mansplain in there so maybe he'll get it and then move on. 
I suspect that's what she was doing. Um, and I was, again, my male privilege, I was completely unaware of it. Um, but it was how we used to pitch together and how we used to work together. And it's funny because I, as I talk to more women especially, and I hear they're like, yeah, that's probably what she was doing because I hear so many women who utilize and um, that tactic, um, so to speak. Um, so that would be, um, I would say, J. Cornbloom Ray for me. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. So here's the second question. What is the one piece of advice you would give your younger self? Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> In all honesty, <laughs> my younger self being a teenager, I would be, okay, um, start loving going to the gym and working out more. And I would have told my younger self to just like, you know, here's some things that you enjoy, like you like playing squash or you do now or you like this. And, you know, and I would have told my younger self to get into that a little bit earlier, like cycling and whatnot, um, just so it was a bit more into my, um, you know, my daily regimen now. That's just for me. <laughs> Love that. I wish we could all tell our younger selves that a little bit more. Um, and the final oh, question. Buy Apple stock. Oh, yes. Apple and Microsoft. Yeah. Missed out. Missed out there. Um, and the final question, what wouldn't we know about you by just looking at you? What would you know about me by just looking at me? I can go many ways with that question. <laughs> a lot of people are surprised that I'm a Whovian. I love, oh, Priya, okay, Advita knows. Priya doesn't. Sorry, just thinking of those. So Whovians are people who are Doctor Who um, fans. So I'm a Doctor Who fan, and may I share a quick story on that front? Yeah, go for a it. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine, he actually works for me now, Scott D'Agostino, um, he's gay. He had, I can't remember, I think it was a big, huge, so Advita, you clearly know Doctor Who. It's a big thing in the UK. Had, um, <laughs> what is it? It was a big, huge one. It was Doctor Who. They had, um, what's his name? I forget the fellow's name. Anyways, they had all the different characters and all the different spinoffs and shows together for this one big thing with the dialects and they were taking over Earth as always. And he went to his Facebook friends and he said, you know, he, he, he was shocked to see all these queer friends who liked Doctor Who. And I was one of them. I was the biggest shock. He's like, you were the biggest surprise because I had no idea you were into Doctor Who. And then he had a viewing party for this big, huge Doctor Who special. And I remember going down to it. I remember I had a family function that day. And it was a bit tight. I was still able to do both, but it was a little bit tight. And I remember saying to my sister, I want to go to this Doctor Who thing. I wasn't living downtown. It was downtown at the time. I was still living at my folks. And she goes, well, you can go do that anytime. I said, Cheryl, it's a bunch of gay guys who are into Doctor Who. He's like, gay guys? And it's like, oh, you got to go to that. I'm like, I know, right? So that, I think, is something that surprises people. And I'm really into Doctor Who. Amazing. I actually have never seen an episode of Doctor Who. But it's a big thing in the UK, Doctor Who. So I know, I yes. know that the phrases that you're referencing. Thank you so much, Jefferson, for your time today. Honestly, we, like I said to you before, we could talk to you for many episodes of, of this podcast. But if people wanted to find you, how can they connect with you? What where's the best place to connect with you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. Um, personally on Instagram and Twitter, it's Jefferson Daryl. Um, breakfast culture is at breakfast culture on Instagram at breakfast culture on Twitter. Um, yeah. Brilliant. And we'll make sure that we share the links and all the ways you can follow Jefferson in our show notes. Thanks again, Jefferson. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. <laughs>